Welcome to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Gretchen McCulloch, and I'm here with Dr. Gabrielle Hodge, who's a deaf researcher and writer based in Melbourne, Australia. She specializes in research relating to deaf people, sign languages, and communication, and has worked with Auslan and British Sign Language, BSL, in Australia and the UK. And today, we're getting enthusiastic about how we bring stories to life. But first, if you're listening to this episode in the normal Lingthusiasm audio feed or reading the transcript, you are missing out. This episode is in Auslan and English. We're working with an interpreter, Julie Judd, so you definitely want to see the video version to see the full interview with Gab. You can see the video with captions at youtube.com slash Lingthusiasm. And if you're already seeing my face, you're in the right spot. It's thanks to our patrons that we're able to do these occasional video episodes. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash Lingthusiasm. Thanks for having me. I would like to, before we start, just acknowledge country and where we are at the moment is at La Trobe University campus. It's beautiful Wurundjeri country and I want to pay respects to elders past, present and future. Thanks for sharing that. My first question is how did you get into linguistics? Well, a big question. I think that I began my journey into linguistics when I was at school. Originally, I was very enthusiastic about plants, things like biology, the life system, how things grow and how we're all connected, and I thought I might become a nurse. So I registered in a course and then I pulled out because there wasn't any role models, dead nurses were not there. So I felt that I couldn't do that and dropped it. And then a few years I went to work, realised as a deaf person, Seeing the world very differently it was very different to being in school in the big wide world and communication was very difficult. There were many barriers. And I started to get interested in language, communication and speech and sign. I started to think, okay, I want to go into a university course and look at linguistics and Auslan being my language, I wanted to bring those two together. So I enrolled here at La Trobe University way back. And did you start enrolling in linguistics working right away or do some other things as well? No, I went straight to linguistics, the whole gamut. Seriously. And, and what parts of linguistics were you excited about? Originally, I was interested in speech and phonetics. Yeah. And like I said before, it was really speech for me that was quite puzzling. And it was throughout my life. And when I went into this course and started studying linguistics, I had the opportunity to pull it apart, what speech was like. So I looked at phonetics, and I had an amazing teacher here, Maria Tabane. She was a big supporter. Mm -hmm. And she brought in another skilled person to teach me one-on-one about speech. And then, at the same time, I was learning Auslan and Sign Language Linguistics from two amazing deaf teachers, Berna Hutchins and also Anne Brenner. 
So those were the two teachers who were working here at the Trove back then. So I was very lucky to have had that speech and linguistic training and also sign language training. And you started doing research at some point in this? Yes, I did. I did my honours here. And I did a small research project, and that was about Auslan. My supervisor, his name was David Bradley, who used to work here at La Trobe as well. He was a marvellous support too. He would say, go, go overseas, go to London. There's a summer school there, and it's specifically on sign linguistics. So off I went with my small Auslan research project and presented. Awesome. And I met so many marvellous deaf scholars there, people like... Lena Ho. We've done an interview with Lena Ho, actually. Yes, yes. And also I met with Julie Hogsan. Oh, many other wonderful, wonderful people. And so what happened because of this? Well, from that, that summer school in London, where I knew that this was the right thing to be doing. I wanted to continue researching sign language. I wanted to look at linguistics and look at other deaf people to get that support for sign language and also to support the deaf community. I came back to Australia and I signed up for a PhD program and that was under Professor Trevor Johnson and at that time he was at Macquarie University and he set up the Auslan Corpus. So you were making a corpus, like a, a big body of videos, I guess, of people signing in Auslan? That's right. I didn't do that. He actually created the corpus, did the filming, filming of over 200 people producing signs. And there was already a rich set of resources available for those who were skilled enough to do research into Auslan and be able to select different elements and recognise certain things and understand how deaf people actually used sign. It wasn't like sign linguists in the past. A lot of people had thought certain things but it wasn't the actual researchers seeing how sign was used naturally. So Trevor Johnson's corpus, for the first time, we were able to then see signing being produced naturally. So where was he getting this data, like bringing people into a lab or...? So the Auslan corpus was the first sign language corpus and it was created following traditional language recording and documentation methods done in the lab. So there was filming, there was cameras, several cameras sitting in a lab, filming people chatting. So it's sort of like what we're doing right now. Yeah, (laughs) pretty similar. (laughs) Yes. But eventually you want to know what people are talking about when they're not in a university campus in two chairs. Do they take it somewhere more natural? For the Auslan corpus? No. What they did was only in the lab. And that influenced other people Mm -hmm. and the projects that they then began filming in more natural environments. So you were using this corpus for your PhD studies, like analysing what was being depicted in it? Yes, yes. So that corpus had a number of different elements and different people signing. There were stories, there were conversations, there were also conversations about games whole number of things and at that time when I was studying in 2010 conversations at that time of people's data of conversation hadn't been looked at it was more narratives that people had looked at because at the time we were still finding more barriers and we had problems 
on how we would research a three-dimensional language, face-to-face language. So how could we capture the signs? And when you actually identify the signs, you had to think about what type of signs they were. Were they conventional signs, like people agreeing on particular signs and the meaning of those signs being conventional, or more unusual signs, depending on context? So that was one of the biggest problems that we had at that time. So I would select a narrative and look at the whole body and the signs. So some parts of that are conventional signs, like here's a word for book or something, and then some parts of that are more depicting what it's like when you're holding a particular book, which is like a large book or a heavy book or a small book or something like that. Exactly. That's a perfect example. Yes. So what did you, what did you find? What were you looking at? Well, from those narratives that I was looking at, I found a various number of things. My view at the time was that I was researching clause structure. I did things like, as an example, spoken language has word order. Mm -hmm. But with sign language, it was different because it's three-dimensional. But what was interesting was, at first, was it a subject that came first or the verb? So I was looking at that. And because the research was being done in sign, narratives have a lot of components. So there's role shift or enactment. It can also be called constructed action. And some people call it quotatives. And that's where you become a character, become another person or another thing, an animal, whatever. So you will say or show what that particular entity did with your body. So I showed how enactment was incorporated into the structure. So I've seen sometimes when people are doing enactment, like let's say you have a story with two people and you're saying, okay, this person does this, this person does this, and so it's showing what their different actions are like? Yes, it's just like that. And at the time I was working very closely with a very good friend of mine and a colleague, that was Lindsay Ferreira, and she was studying at Gallaudet University. She came to Australia, and so she had marvellous knowledge from what they taught at Gallaudet University at the time and brought that here. And we sat and chatted, and we looked at the way signs were being produced and tried to work out what the best way to describe what people were doing. What did you find out? Well, one study that we looked at together was sign narratives. And it was very basic, very simple, this narrative, and we did a retelling. So we had 20 people who told the one story and another 20 people telling another story. So each 20 people had the same story and we compared how people would produce the story in sign, when, why and how they incorporated enactment. Uh, So what were the two narratives that you compared? Okay, so we had one narrative which was the frog story and that was involving 20 people signing the frog story. Lindsay did that work. And then there was another story called The Boy Who Cried Wolf. And again, 20 people relayed that story, and I focused on that. And the frog story followed a picture book, and the pictures created the story, whereas The Boy Who Cried Wolf followed a narrative. So the person had to read the book, think about it, and then reproduce it to another person. It was very worthwhile comparing notes with Lindsay because the two of us were able to see 
from those narratives how the stories were conveyed in Oslo. And the frog story is sort of a classic story that's used in various areas of linguistics because it's this sort of wordless picture book, right? That I think I've seen. You have this boy who's lost a frog and has to find it with a dog and stuff. And then the boy who's cried, who cries wolf is more of like a folk tale that people might have been familiar with before the study. Yeah, it was more a, a moral. There was mm. a moral to that story. So, you know, don't lie, pretty much. Don't lie. Um, don't trust a wolf. Don't, <laughs> don't, like don't raise false alarms. <laughs> yes, exactly. So did you find that there were differences in how people told those two stories? Yes. What we found was huge differences. So the frog story... That was more repetitive in mm. terms of depicting science. For example, it discussed a jar mm-hmm. with a lid and various elements, so a tree, beehive, people fingerspelt beehive and then showed a depicting sign to represent the beehive, and then the boy who cried wolf in that narrative. That followed more English structure. There was a big influence in English and there were more words mm. about what people had said and what people did in that retelling. So with the frog story, there was no dialogue within it, mm. whereas the boy who cried wolf did. So it was very interesting to be able to compare both and how enactment would occur in both stories. Do you think that's related to like the plot of these stories or the fact that one was in pictures and one was in words when they initially encountered it? or? I think that's what we did find. We looked at it and we thought, what will we do? We wanted to compare how the event structure proceeded when they conveyed these stories. So Western stories usually have a beginning and then one or two events where people start to become a bit fascinated and interested because something's happening within the narrative. And then it becomes the climax of the event and then resolve at the end or the summary at the end. So Lindsay and I looked at both narratives and how the events occurred throughout the narrative and we looked at when enactment occurred and what we found were very similar things but when the story became very active and exciting, people would use more enactment to demonstrate a lot more of that action and it became much more alive and interesting yeah and in the boring parts it was (laughs) less active more of the telling rather than showing at that point yeah basic information and then the enactment would occur in the signing so what happened after this you know you're researching enactment there it's led into future projects yes yes so that project was really important for Lindsay and I because we already knew how enactment was very important for sign language. It was not just gesture. It was Mm -hmm. not a pretend form of language, if you like. It was a very integral part and very important part of sign languages. So we became more interested in looking at it and we became more interested to research how enactment would combine with other strategic elements within sign. For example, how you would use more conventional signs with enactment, how you would use depicting signs with enactment. So and conventional signs versus depicting signs. So conventional signs are those signs, as you mentioned before, things like book, mm-hmm. 
and then depicting signs. It might be a book and how big the book is. So you're showing how big or how small the book is. So you would sign the conventional sign first and then the depicting sign. So if you're using the depicting sign, you would also see enactment occur at the same time. Not always, but commonly you would. So when you're telling a story or something, you're you're doing the conventional signs and then you're sort of, as you're enacting it or sort of coming up with how it fits into the story or, or the narrative, you're doing more depicting to, to show that? Yes, possibly. Mm. Do you go on to other types of things other than stories? Yeah. So Lindsay and I continued the work that we were doing. Yes, so we became more excited about referencing. So this is how people then say who did what to whom. Okay. And it's a very important topic to look at. And it's easy to research that. Also with other languages, it's easy to research that. So our obsession with enactment went on hold for a little while. And we became a little bit more generic. And then we came back to narratives. And we went back. And every time referencing occurred, or somebody mentioned the boy, or the dog, or the wolf, or the village people, we noted down what had happened, if it was mentioned first or mentioned later. And then we looked at how a person would deliver that reference. So, like, if the boy is more central to the story, then maybe the boy's being said a lot or being said first, or conversely, maybe doesn't need to be said very much at all because we know the whole story is about the boy? Yes. Yeah, what we commonly found was the first time somebody was mentioned, like the boy, mm-hmm. you would use the conventional sign boy mm-hmm. and possibly point to where the boy is situated in the signing space mm-hmm. and then point to the boy. And then if you're talking about the boy again throughout the story, then you would just be enact the boy. So that does the work of who is doing what. To you who. can just sort of depict what he's doing or, you know, embody him. Yes. Exactly, and you can do it quite easily and demonstrate it clearly and easily because you already know from context that's who it is. And because it was someone else, then you'd have to introduce that person instead. Yes, sort of. It just depends on the reference. Depends what it is. For example, there are some reference in the story that were not specific animals. Well, those that we don't have in Australia... Mm. There were some animals that did crop up, like there were ground rats. I think they're called moles or something. Sure, groundhogs, moles. Yeah, something like that. And if you look at the frog storybook, you can see what the animal is there. But with the wolf story, it was sheep, and we do it with sheep in Australia. Whereas, yeah, everyone knows what a wolf is, so it was different for the other stories. So, yeah, we did look at that, and it wasn't just the specific referent but also what animal or object was known to deaf people to be able to then reproduce that so that people knew what you were talking about so that clearly depicting signs were very important when the reference wasn't known or whether you needed to add additional information. And that helped to then develop the understanding of the watcher. And so that's a big reason why depiction is very important. So you could just say some, you know, some sort of small critter, even if you don't have a specific name for it or don't recognize it and don't expect the other person to yeah, recognize it. Yeah, you can just show it. Yeah. 
Right, so you worked on narratives, you worked on how reference works, and what else? Well, I also did a lot of community projects. Uh, one example is I worked with a really exciting project, an English to Auslan translation project. In Australia, we have many online translations where there's a person signing a translation of information on the screen. And back in 2014, people were noticing that some translations were very good and some were not. And so Della Goswell, who's at Macquarie University, set up a project to look into what deaf people thought were good translations and also to discuss deaf and hearing interpreters and their translation abilities and who would be the translators. And we collected information about what would make a good translation. And with that project, I worked very closely with a wonderful deaf interpreter and translator who's quite knowledgeable. Her name's Steph, Steph Linda, and we worked with a number of other people in a team and went to different venues in Australia looking at the translation. So are these like live translations on a stage or video translations of official material or video translations of yeah. Usually live it's called interpretation. If it's oh, right. live. And if it's um, something that you prepare for and unpack, then that is what we would understand as a translation. That's the theory anyway. Yeah. <laughs> in, in principle. What kinds of genres were these translations in? Oh, there was a number. It was more about the deaf community here who often view translations. It might be information that is health-related. It could be government services, like Centrelink information. It could be news, right? Mm -hmm. The Deaf Society might distribute news and events, information like that. It could be a number of different topics. What, what did you find about the quality of translation? So with that translation project, what we looked into and found was that it was vital that any online translation in Auslan matches the intended audience, the specific audience. The deaf community have a variety of different signers and some people are fluent in English, other people are not. And so it's really important that any translation can suit those that don't have access to English so they can then access the information visually in Auslan. Yeah, that makes sense. So you also went overseas, right? Yes, I did. I finished that project and I had a wonderful opportunity to go overseas and I worked with a well-known deaf research centre, DECAL. It's the Deafness Cognition and Language Research Centre. And that's under UCL in London. Yeah, University College London. So what did you look into there? Well, when I was there, I was working on a project and that was under Professor Kersey Cormier. And she set up a project looking at BSL, mm -hmm. British Sign Language, and using a BSL corpus, similar to the Auslan corpus that we had, Mm -hmm. And then they, yeah, they then created a VSL corpus, and that project specifically didn't look at narratives, but on conversations. So people having conversations naturally with each other. Oh, that sounds fun! So now you have two people to analyze, or more. Well, there was two people. Yes, we didn't have groups. It was still only two people. 
just keep it simple for the first stage. Yeah, I think I think so, but there were many people internationally that are now looking at group conversations for a variety of sign languages, but it's quite complex. Yeah. Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, I've done some annotation of audio data and annotating video data for like, okay, who's saying what and when, what sort of linguistic factors are going on. It's got to be a whole lot of work. Definitely. Uh, so what were you looking at in this corpus? Well, what we were doing was three things. We were looking at ASL and how people make sentences or clauses and how the grammar works. Secondly, we looked at negation. It's very interesting what people were saying and then the sign can't and how the head moved and fitted with the production of that sign. And then thirdly, how people asked questions. Mm. So were there manual signs in terms of who, what and why? I'm even signing the BSL sign <laughs> while I'm talking about it. So, yeah, and what expressions on the face were being produced. So how that all fitted together. That sounds neat. So we can link to some of the, the papers and stuff that are about these various projects if people want to learn more? Yes, well, it depends. When this episode's going to air, if those papers are published by that time, but you can check my website or the DECAL website for those publications that are to come. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure it's a long process. Gab, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, if you could leave people knowing one thing about linguistics, what would that be? Okay. Well, linguistics are really important. And if we want to understand, really understand a language and understand communication, linguistics is not enough. I strongly believe that we need to have a variety of different disciplines of research. For example, the work that I've done over my career into language and translation and in the deaf community. Linguistics doesn't cover everything. You need to take many points of view. So I would encourage people to keep an open mind and be creative and look at different ways that linguistics can be applied. For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, not judging your grammar stickers, esoteric symbols mugs, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter, my blog is allthingslinguistic.com, and my book about internet language is called Because Internet. Lauren tweets and blogs as Superlingo. Our guest, Gabrielle Hodge, can be found on Twitter as at Gab underscore Hodge, and her website is gabriellehodge.com. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to an extra Lingthusiasm episode to listen to every month, plus our entire archive of bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash Lingthusiasm, or follow the links for our website. Have you gotten really into linguistics and you wish you had more people to talk with about it? Patrons can also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans. Plus, all patrons help keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include books that speculate about the future of English and an updates episode about what we've been doing in 2022 and what's coming up in 2023.
Can't afford to pledge? That's okay too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone in your life who's curious about language. Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gaughan. Our senior producer is Claire Gaughan. Our editorial producer is Sarah Dapirella. And our production assistant is Martha Tsutsui Billens. Our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. The interpreter for this episode is Julie Judd. Stay Lingthusiastic! Enthusiastic.